Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. So today our guest is Noah Smith. Noah Smith is an associate professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Washington. Previously, he was an associate professor of language technologies and machine learning in the School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon University. He received his PhD in computer science from Johns Hopkins University in 2006 and his bachelor in computer science and bachelor in linguistics from the University of Maryland in 2001. His research interests include statistical natural language processing, especially unsupervised methods, machine learning, and applications of natural language processing. It's a great pleasure having you in the room, uh, Noah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so we are very interested in the paper that um, you published at ACL 2017. Its title is Deep Multitask Learning for Semantic Dependency Parsing. Could you tell us more about semantic dependency parsing? Sure. Um, so semantic parsing in general is uh, basically the problem of mapping natural language sentences into structured representations of their meaning. And in the most sort of classic form, semantic parsing mapped into uh, uh, logical structures, like first-order logic expressions. Um, and then more recently, people have explored a lot of alternative representations of semantics. Um, the, one, of the, one of the most widespread that was being studied about 10 years ago was called semantic role labeling, where you find spans uh, corresponding to predicates and their arguments. And so you'd, you'd, uh, you'd run a semantic role labeler and you'd get back a bundle of these basically tuples of uh, a predicate and one of its arguments and which role that argument was filling. Um, relatively flat, sometimes called a shallow representation. So semantic dependencies are kind of a newer, uh, newer variant of semantic representation that, that has some of the nice properties of both of these. Um, it looks, uh, I guess when you, when you look at a semantic dependency parse on paper, it looks like a gra it's a graph where the words are vertices and then you've got labeled edges uh, linking usually predicates to arguments, although there's usually a pretty broad set of, uh, of relations that are labeled this way. Um, and in the formalisms that we're looking at in this paper, uh, each, uh, there, and there are three of them, um, each one is sort of derived through a different, a different protocol for uh, involving different formalisms and different assumptions and different label sets. But the general idea is that you, you represent the meaning of the sentence by linking together the words and labeling those links. And in each of these cases, the, the graph has certain properties. Uh, they're, usually, um, they're usually graphs, not trees. So that's one of the things that differentiates semantic dependency parsing from syntactic dependency parsing. And um, uh, typically, these uh, structures do not, I believe it's a, it's a constraint in these data sets that the structures don't have directed cycles. So you, uh, you're, you're basically dealing with directed acyclic graphs. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting choice that you, do, you wanted to exclude uh, any uh, cyclic graphs. Do you, why, why is that the case? Um, so I guess the, the theoretical answer might be that the, the theories say you don't need directed cycles. Um, but one of the things that I remember about the construction of this data set was that sometimes they, they got them anyway, whether as a, as, as a result of the parsers that were run in the protocol for creating the data or, or human annotators thought that there really were cycles. And those were excluded, which I think was an, an interesting choice, maybe not the way I would have done it. Um, but I, 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 I defer to the, the data set constructors uh, who are experts in, in, uh, in their own right and, um, and don't ask too many questions. Although I think it's, I think it's definitely, it's always worth asking, you know, what's going on with the formalisms. That was one of the things we tried to poke at a little bit with our model later in the paper. 
um, you know, what, what's similar and different across these three formalisms. Do you have a simple example of the difference between syntactic dependencies and semantic dependencies? Yeah, so um, so one kind of structure would be uh, if you have um, a control. So you have like, uh, the boy wants to go to New York. Well, no, the boy wants to go to Seattle. Um, so in that sentence, uh, I mean, it's beautiful outside. So, so you've, got two, you've got two verbs. You've got wanting and going. And in the semantic parse, um, boy would probably be uh, the, the agent of both of them. Right? And so you'd have two edges linking from those verbs into boy. Um, but in a, in a traditional syntactic parse, you don't get that kind of cyclic structure, and boy only gets to be the subject of one thing. So what do you think is attractive about doing it as a dependency uh, relations instead of just predicate arguing structure like onto node style uh, SRL? Yeah, so um, I think the, uh, you know, like, like many problems in NLP, there's, there's, there's always more than one way to look at the core of the problem. And just like in syntax, you have phrase structure syntax, like in the pen tree bank, and you have dependency syntax. Um, and you can kind of talk about the advantages of both. They're capturing, they're both kind of capturing very similar things a lot of the time, but not always. Um, and I think one of the things that people liked about dependency syntax was that algorithmically you could use graph-based algorithms that were that had really low grammar constants. Um, so so we're, we're basically they they always everything always depends on the length of the sentence in some polynomial way. Um, but uh, but there wasn't like this big explosion based on the size of a grammar. So there was a big move. I you know. 10 years ago from more phrase structure oriented approaches to syntax to dependencies. And people started kind of porting that over to semantics. So there was a version of the, of the prop bank um, semantic role labeling task uh, with, done with dependencies at Connell a couple, of, a couple of years. That was one of the shared tasks. This uh, shared task that we addressed in this paper um, was originally at Semival, I think 2014 and 15. And uh, it's, it's, I think it's sort of a natural way to go if you want to be able to apply algorithms that, that are sort of spanning graphs, spanning tree type algorithms. Um, I think also there's some, there's some inspiration coming from recent direct annotation projects. So uh, people may be familiar with the abstract meaning representation, AMR, uh, which is a uh, semantic representation. I, you could call it, I would call it a semantic dependency formalism. Um, it's not the one, not one of the ones we looked at in this paper, but uh, what's interesting about AMR is that they've actually got people sitting down and annotating this directly. And so I think a lot of people believe, it, it maybe isn't a proven thing, but a lot of people tend to believe that dependencies may be easier for people to annotate. They may be a more natural way to get data, not labeled data. Right. I'm also, I don't, yeah, go ahead. I'm also working on relation extraction these days, and it seems to me that uh, Dependency, semantic dependency parsing may be a more natural fit for uh, for extracting for helping relation extraction than uh, doing predicate argument structure. Yeah, it fits the it fits the problem more. Uh, yeah, that, that, yeah, that, that's good to hear. I mean, I, I think I actually don't think that it's um, radically different from more span based representations. I think actually that. Um, while while when you formally define the problem, you're looking at you know edges between things versus labels um, of spans, um, they capture a lot of the same information, and so it may it may end up being often you know we find that we kind of go back and forth between a few different versions before we eventually find the thing that just sort of computationally works with the data we have. Um, 
But yeah, I think I think one of the reasons people in my group were drawn to this is that we've always been fans of dependency syntax, as as you well know, this was in your thesis. Um, we um, and we and so being able to port ideas from dependency syntax over into semantics is kind of exciting, and it's one of the things we did in this paper. As we'll probably talk about. So, so what is the base model that's used in the paper? Yeah. So the so the base the base model is you, you have to kind of think of it at two levels. Um, at the lower level. You have to. You, you're going to represent every word by a vector, okay? And the vector you're going to represent the word by is uh, is obtained by running a bidirectional LSTM over the sentence. And so you have base word vectors that come in part from uh, from pre-training, like glove. I think we use glove in this paper. Um, concatenated with a learned vector, or concatenated with a learned vector for the part of speech tag. And then you, you you pass the by LSTM across, and all that really does is it contextualizes each of these word vectors. So now you have a new word vector that tells you, here's the word that I'm looking at right here at position four in the sentence, and uh, this is how we're going to represent it given everything that's happening to its left and to its right. Okay, That's the first part. The second part of the model takes pairs of those vectors, potential, so one potential parent, one potential child, and then another outside vector for the label. And pushes that through a multi-layer perceptron to give you a score for a potential labeled edge that you might put into the graph. Okay, and then at the very top, you have uh, inference to decide which subset of edges you're going to put together to form the graph. And for that, we use uh, an approximate decoder called AD cubed, which is basically you can think of it as a, a really nice approximate inference method for dealing with very general factor graph problems. That you can express as an integer linear program. So uh, we've talked a bit on, on in this podcast in recent episodes about transition-based parsers. Uh, could you do this with transition-based parsing? What would be challenging about this problem? So you could, um, and in fact, we we had a paper last year. Swabhaus Swayam Dipta, my PhD student, and, and some other collaborators had a paper at Connell last year where we looked at a semantic dependency parsing problem. Using uh, transition-based parsing, and and uh, the idea was the idea was that you were doing syntactic and semantic parsing at the same time, both in dependency formalisms. And the thing you have to do to get the semantic side working is you've got to have you've got to be able to handle uh, non-projectivity, okay? And and the, the people who do dependency parsing um, with with transition-based models like Yoakum Nivra and, and many collaborators have developed ways to do that. You add this extra swap operation uh, so that you can you can get some edges that cross over each other. Um, and that was what we did in, in Swapa's work. And for that data set, for that task, again, it's a different, different data set than this one, so it's not really directly comparable. Um, that worked pretty well, and, and people have found that to work pretty well. Uh, I am not 100% sure that these data sets have been tackled with transition-based methods or how far you would have to go. Um, my understanding is that swap operations don't give you all the non-projectivities. They might give you most of what you need. Um, but I think when... When you start getting to the point where you want uh, directed graphs instead of just forests, um, even if you have non-projectivity, uh, it, it might start to become less clear, and you might have to really carefully design the transition set. So yeah, I guess I guess th there's sort of, in my opinion, there's sort of two flavors of parsing right now. There's the transition-based, let's make it fast, as fast as can be, linear time, greedy processing. Um, and you know we've, we've done work in that area with some of Elite's thesis work used, used those techniques and it's a fantastic way to go if, if you care about speed uh, and you're not um, you're not trying to interpret the uh, elements of the model in their own right 
as mathematical objects of interest. Um, I think when we go the graph-based route, like we're going here, where we're using a, a global solver that reasons about the whole structure and tries to find the max scoring structure um, with less regard for runtime, it, it feels to me more like a computational linguistics project where we're making claims about the formalism and about what you can represent, and we, we're interested in the constraint set. And uh, I think I think there's room in the world for both of the kinds of approaches, but it would be interesting to try doing something similar with, with a stack-based approach, I think. Okay. So the paper is about multitask learning uh, for all three formalisms at the same time. How do you do this? Right. So we have a couple of, uh, of different ways to do it. And um, the, the first one is, is the easiest to understand uh, because it's, a, it's an idea that's about 10 years old now. So people may be familiar with Hal Demey's frustratingly easy domain adaptation method. Um, and we basically treat the, the three. So the three formalisms are our three tasks. Or you could say there are three output domains. And so the idea is that um, you could, in, in the first part of the paper, we just train up a separate model for each of the three. And that actually works better than things that had been published before. So that's kind of our first result. And then, then we said, OK, can we share? What, what can we share across these three different data sets so that we get better performance on some or all of them? And the, the idea is that um, in, in the Hal Demey work, you, had, you basically took every feature. This was back in the days where you had hand-engineered features. Um, but you could do the same thing for neural features that are discovered. Uh, you basically have uh, a copy of each feature in each domain, and then you have a copy of each feature that's general across all the domains and shared. So when you, sc when you score each potential part of a semantic dependency graph um, in formalism number one, you're going to have a score that comes from the formalism number one copy of the BiLSTM, and then you're going to have another another uh, score that comes from the general BiLSTM that's shared across all the formalisms. So every part gets scored both by the domain general and the domain specific uh, feature learner, um, and then you train end to end. The whole thing goes into the same inference engine. Uh, you predict each of the um, each of the different um, uh, parses of in each of the three formalisms. Um, on its own, and then when you backprop, you backprop both into your domain-specific uh, BiLSTM and your general BiLSTM or encoder. Um, and so that uh, that worked pretty nicely. We did it. We also tested in the paper. You can see we bladed the the domain-specific one. So we actually had one model that where where the the whole encoder was shared. Uh, the only, there was only one encoder um, that was used for all three formalisms, and you're basically learning features that are supposed to do all three jobs, and then the multi-layer perceptrons are separate for each of the tasks. Um, so that, that was sort of the first version, the frustratingly easy. Right. So um, in the paper, there are, uh, like, you score every edge with, uh, with three components, one that only looks at the, uh, at the pair of words, and another that right. looks at um, the, the predicate. The predicate word, right. another that looks at uh, also just, the label. Um, right. I think I, th I think technically there was one that looked just at the parent, of the, one that looked at the parent and child, and one that looked at the parent, child, and label together. Yeah. Right. So I'm I'm a little surprised that you didn't share the parameters uh, for the MLPs uh, for the multi-layer perceptrons that uh, that score the predicate only and the predicate and child uh, across yeah. the different formalisms. Yeah, we could have done that. I don't remember why we didn't. Right. So, what is the second method that you use to uh, to do multitask learning? Right. So, the second method uh, is where we really start to exploit this sort of factor graph view of the parsing problem. So, remember we said earlier that we're scoring uh, basically we're scoring each potential uh, labeled edge between two words that we could put into our 
into our parse. Um, and this is called a first order model or a, an arc factored model because we're scoring each individual arc by itself. And modulo the constraints that we have on the graph, and those are discussed in the paper, probably not, not worth talking about now. Um, we could make a decision about every edge, basically independently, modulo those constraints. Um, one of the things that happened uh, over the past uh, 15 years in, uh, in syntactic parsing was people started building parsers that looked at higher and higher order factors. So you look at two edges that are adjacent to each other or that have the same parent or that chain together to form, to, to link a grandparent, parent, and child. And, and so people have also done this um, in semantic dependency parsing. I believe this was how uh, uh, Andre Martinch won the, the challenge in 2014 on these data sets. Um, by having a second, a second order parser, maybe a third. I think it was second. Um, so what we, what we were thinking, well, it, it's certainly interesting to try a second order model for any of the, for any of the formalisms here with our new neural encoder at the bottom. Um, we didn't do that. What we did do was we started creating higher level factors that looked at, uh, that looked at edges in two different tasks. So now imagine that instead of predicting each of the graphs by, uh, each of the semantic graphs by itself. For each of the three formalisms, you get a sentence and you're going to predict all three graphs at the same time. And when you score an edge between two words, you're actually considering uh, not just that edge, but other edges between those two words in the other formalisms. And so we had second and third order factors that looked at pairs and triples of edges uh, between the same pair of words. That's really important. There are other ways you could conceive of doing it. That was the first most obvious thing to try. So if you're considering linking two words, you're also going to consider whether another one of your sister formalisms is going to link those two words. So could you talk in more detail about how uh, you do the scoring? Um, yeah, yeah. So that so that part uh, is one of the that's where one of the parts of the paper that uh, I think we, we we revised quite heavily after um, after the reviewers gave us feedback because it was uh, it, it's it, it, on the surface it's a little complicated. So the basic idea is that. Um, You've basically got uh, uh, a vector uh, that embeds um, each of the two words in each of the three formalisms. Um, and what you're going to do is you're going to consider basically multiplying out um, all the possible combinations uh, across the three tasks. So um, I'm sorry, I'm scanning the paper to make sure I don't say anything too terribly wrong. Uh, no, it, it's fine. Um, so you're, you're basically taking an outer product of, uh, of uh, vectors, and you're going to do this six times out because you've got um, uh, a labeled arc in each of the three tasks, and each of those labeled arcs has uh, a parent and a child. Um, so you can imagine this six-dimensional six or six, uh, what's the word you use for tensors? Six, mode? Sixth order. mode tensor, uh, where you've got um, uh, a massive number of parameters. Uh, because you're multiplying uh, these six vectors together by this big tensor. Okay, um, so that's sort of the that's sort of the, an unreasonable way to do this uh, that we didn't want to try because it would have too many parameters. Um, but fortunately, uh, we borrowed from some uh, work by um, uh, Lay et al. 2014, where we say, look, this this huge tensor is is going to be limited in rank. So we're actually going to represent it as a product of some smaller, uh, smaller tensors, smaller uh, matrices that get that get multiplied out, um, and so those are actually going to be the parameters. Um, and so we we basically, you know, there's a there's a nice little equation in the paper that shows how you can get this uh, this outer product by rearranging terms, and you you've basically now got uh, matrices that you multiply by each of the embedded parts, and um, and 
you're basically training something kind of like you, you can think of it kind of like a a bilinear model except by by whatever in, in tensor world instead of linear world um, so so this was a this was kind of a nice trick we never actually have to instantiate that tensor and it, it's only mentioned once or twice in the paper um, the the real parameters are still matrices um, but this is a way of getting what this is this is essentially a way of scoring uh, groups of arcs together across the formalisms between a, a fixed pair of words. So going back a bit to this um, third order uh, semantic dependency parse where you're considering three edges at a time, would it help, do you think, if you had syntax edges too, like syntactic dependencies and did like a multitask with semantic and syntactic? I guess you kind of talked about that with Swampa as well. Yeah, I think, that's a, I think it's a really cool idea and we certainly talked about it um, and it's, it's potentially something we would try. Um, one of the reasons we didn't prioritize it for this paper was that um, when we did the simple single task semantic dependency parser first without using any syntax at all, we were beating the, the state of the art. Um, and so I think um, that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, some people will take that to mean, oh, you don't need syntax. I don't know if that's true. I'm not, I'm not willing to go there yet. Um, but I certainly think it's interesting, you know, a very natural way to treat syntax in this model would be, it's just another task. You do it alongside everything else. Um, I suspect that we or someone else could get better performance by rethinking exactly which cross task factors we should have here. Uh, my suspicion is that um, limiting only to cross-task factors that look at all the links between a pair of words, you might want to be more creative than that when you incorporate syntax. Um, I also think it might it might work better. You know, you never know whether joint inference over everything versus pipelining is going to work better. Syntactic parsing has gotten really good. Uh, it might make sense to just run a good syntactic parser and then you know use that to to give you more features instead of a by LSTM run some other network that, that embeds a word in its syntactic context and just feed into this. Um, just a, a preview of some work that's, uh, that's making its way through, uh, through the, the review system. Um, one thing we've tried on another semantic parsing task is something we call scaffolding, where you don't have a syntactic parser, you don't have explicit syntactic features, but you introduce another task to your framework that involves some syntax-related prediction. So for example, um, here it could be uh, you're going to throw in some data that is syntactically annotated and you're going to predict uh, which spans of text are constituents or which pairs of words are syntactically linked. And you just learn that additional task. It, you, don't, you kick it away after you've done, you're done training. You don't actually care how well it performs. You're not using it as a parser, but it guides your representation learning to know what, a little bit about syntax. And we found, we found that that works really nicely in another, another setting we'll discuss in maybe a future podcast episode. So this brings me to another question that I had. Um, so it seems like the whole point of this multitask learning stuff is essentially to do better representation learning. Uh, there's been a lot of people thinking about representation learning with these deep neural nets these days. Like, do you have any high-level thoughts on these directions? Like, is multitask the way to go? It's, it, it, I think it's a cool way to go because, um, you know, I guess one coming back to the formalism thing, I, I, I love all of these different formalisms, but none of them quite completely captures everything there is to capture about semantics. And more practically, um, you're never going to get all the, all the wonderful semantic 
annotation people to agree on, you know, there's never going to be one semantic annotation that rules them all. Nobody's ever going to kind of decide this is what we all need and we all believe in it. Um, instead, you're going to have lots of different iterations of projects over the years that focus on different things and try to incorporate more phenomena and, you know, gradually creep away from things like the Wall Street Journal and start looking at other kinds of text and text in other languages. And all of them at different times are going to capture different pieces of the puzzle. And so I think the multi multitask is nice, because it, especially in the neural setting, because it automates the discovery of what's shared and what's not. You don't have to. You, you don't have to know. You don't have to. Really, you don't have to have a cross theory theory. Each theory can kind of do its own thing, and to the extent that it's learnable, what you can share and, and leverage, you do. And if there if if the tasks were not helpful to each other, then we wouldn't have gotten a gain, and that that I think kind of would have been interesting as well. Um, do you think there's any general representation learning for a language that will be useful across all of NLP? Um, I go back and forth believing that um, that those things exist or are discoverable. Um, I mean, uh, I do think that there is in you know, for most of us, there is kind of a language processing uh, capability that we use when we do things like translate or read or write or talk or whatever. Um, but uh, it, it's really hard to believe that the things that are going to work really well in machine translation are going to be the same as the ones that work really well in in other applications today. But I think I don't I don't think anybody uh, in NLP working on problems like semantic dependency parsing. Um, can say with a straight face that they don't think there's something shared, right? This is a this is a problem that's really at the core of the field, and we're thinking long term about what it might be useful for. I don't I don't think it's going to you know necessarily help tomorrow's question answering or information extraction or MT systems, but maybe in ten years, maybe in twenty years, we'll start seeing some more unification, maybe. Okay. So this sounds great. Uh, what are the main highlights and the results that you found in the experiments? Um, yeah, so uh, so basically, we, we talked about two different ways of uh, of doing the multitask learning, and um, you can do either one by itself, or you can do them both together. And we found doing them both together uh, works best, uh, and we got we got gains on all uh, three tasks over um, uh, over previously published systems and our basic system. Um, I think the the one of the one of the key highlights that's easy to miss is that uh, there's an evaluation on out of domain data, which I believe is Brown Corpus. Um, and the and the numbers the gains there were larger so um, so I, I find that kind of exciting that you know maybe maybe we're moving towards something more like broad coverage semantics um, so yeah so I, I, there, there's a lot of little details in there but I think those are the big take homes nice and I it was interesting to see a very honest uh, statement here in the paper saying by looking at undirected overlap between unlabeled arcs we discovered that modeling only arcs in the same direction may have been a design mistake. I thought that was very interesting. Do, do you have any comments on this? Yeah, so if we, you know, if um, you always have to, at some point you have to just decide, okay, we've got our eight pages, let's submit this to a conference and then, you know, we can write more papers later. Um, but if, there, if, if, uh, if we'd had more time, I think one of the natural things to try would have been uh, to consider cross-task factors that go in both directions. Um, it turns out that you know, as people who are familiar with um, with the many uh, conventions available for uh, syntactic dependency annotation, the same thing holds in semantics. That there are different ways to choose what you're going to label, uh, what the labels are going to be, and what the direction of the arcs is going to be. Um, and so, uh, one of the um, one of the three formalisms, the one the one called PSD, it's based on the Prague. 
dependency formalism uh, reverses the direction of some of the arcs. And so we, I think we missed out a little bit by not having a, a cross-task factor that allowed uh, a, a reverse arc in the prog data to be uh, scored together with a, an arc in the, in, the, in the other direction on the other data sets. Um, this is the kind of thing that, you know, there are a lot of ways you could fix that problem. You could have the direction of the arc be, you know, another another thing in the model, uh, first order citizen. There's a, there's a lot of different ways to fix it. The, the most obvious, I think, is, um, is just have more cross-task factors or maybe uh, replace some of the ones we used with some more carefully chosen ones. So exciting. This means uh, the potential for this method is really... Uh above what you what the results that you've shown. Yeah, I think there's I think there's still a lot more things to try. Yeah. All right, so one more question. I've been doing a lot of work on question answering kinds of things and in information extraction recently. Um, and it looks like models there are moving towards just end to end removing removing pipelines as much as possible so you don't run syntax analysis anymore, you don't run SRL, you just have a BioSTM learn all of the semantics that you need and then output the question. So I don't know what what do you think we should use? Do you think this is the way to go. Do you think semantic dependencies are helpful for some downstream actual task? So I guess um, it's going to depend on a number of factors. So um, I think when you have um, large, very large amounts of data, um, this kind of structure may be less important. Um, but I think that when you are when you're faced with a smaller uh, data domain and um, and you don't have uh, uh, you know, you, your, your BioSTM has, has to do a lot of work with a lot of this data. Um, then using the linguistic bias that's uh, afforded you by a semantic representation might, might be helpful. Um, I also think that, um, you know, there is really no such thing as general purpose open domain question answering. Like these things are always about something in particular. and. It, there's always, you know, extra questions like what are the databases or or corpora that are kind of available to help answer your question. Um, my suspicion is that if, if like tomorrow you were tasked with building a new question answering system for a very specific domain for which um, you didn't have much to go on um, and you had to, you know, you, you were you were trying to learn sort of all the possible patterns that people use when they ask questions about, I don't know, whatever it is, let's say it's a, a database about uh, genetic diseases or, you know, something like that. Um, being able to, you know, let your model focus more on uh, picking up the obvious patterns in a semantic, uh, semantic argument kind of space rather than a surface order string uh, kind of space. I think you'd be able to learn faster with less data. Um, but, you know, it's always an empirical question. I think, uh, like I said before, I think these are, uh, th this kind of work is a longer term bet. I don't know that it will pay off in the current evaluations for things like IE and QA. Um, but I think in the long run, uh, if we want general purpose tools for dealing with language, then we should, we should pay a lot of attention, a lot more attention to uh, abstract representations that linguistics has already discovered. Yeah, I, I guess I could <clears throat> summarize that as um, if you want to use machine learning in order to do some task, you need features somewhere. Yeah. And if you don't have enough data to do representation learning, you uh, do the representation learning yourself by hand, and maybe these formalisms that linguists have come up with is a, is a good way to do that. They might be a shortcut, right? Yeah. All right, thank you very much for making the time uh, for recording this, Noah. It's always good uh, to find an excuse to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks for coming by, and I'll, uh, I'll close by uh, acknowledging my co-authors, uh, Hao Peng and Sam Thompson, uh, whose work this is, and I hope people will come uh, see the work presented at ACL in Vancouver next month. Thank you.